Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho with me Bex and me Eason and welcome to our first proper episode of this new podcast all about the prisoner. Yep and this week we're going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the show with a series of podcasts featuring interviews with people involved in various capacities with the prisoner and kicking off the series is a chat we had with Fiona Moore. Yeah, so earlier this year at the World Science Fiction Convention in Helsinki, we got together with Fiona Moore, who's co-author of Fallout, The Unofficial Guide, which is a wonderful book all about the prisoner. It's got great insights into the show. And we had a, a long chat with Fiona about the show in the corner of a cafe at the Mesokeskus in Helsinki. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're very grateful to Fiona for taking the time to speak to us. And yeah, we hope you enjoy it. So we're joined now by Fiona Moore. We're at Worldcon 75 in Helsinki, recording this at the back of a a large sort of buffet hall. Um, Now, Fiona, you're uh, author of, or co-author with Alan Stevens of Fallout, the unofficial guide to the prisoner, which was published back in 2007. And we thought it'd be great to get you in for a chat about all things the prisoner with the 50th anniversary approaching. Yes, well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, no, the uh, one thing I will say about the popularity of The Prisoner, it's a testament to that, that although Fallout uh, was uh, first published in 2007, it hasn't been out of print since. And we're actually in, I think, like the third edition now (laughs) in terms of things we've added. Because even even, um, in a program that was finished 50 years ago, we're still um, finding out new things and adding new things and uh, so new photos and things Mm. come to light. So... uh, Luckily, Telos are pretty sympathetic about uh, <laughs> any additions we want to make. So, uh, so, but yeah, there's still always so much going on with the prisoner. Where did your interest in the prisoner start? Well, I'd known about it peripherally ever since I uh, started getting into TV fandom, which was when I was a teenager. Um, but I didn't actually see any of it till I was in university. Like a lot of people mm. seem to get their first experience of uh, the prisoner, uh, sort of like with David Lynch and Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. in university. And uh, yeah, it uh, just completely blew me away because um, I think the thing that struck me the most about it was that uh, people who'd been telling me about it said, oh, it's great, it's wonderful. They said it's about surveillance, it's about the individual. Uh, but I hadn't realized how beautiful the village was until I actually saw it. How there is this sense of almost seductive beauty. You know, you see the village and it doesn't seem horrible and totalitarian. And, uh, you know, you, you think it's sort of place you'd like to go. You'd like to stay. You wouldn't mind being under surveillance in a place uh, like that. And then you start realizing that's the seductiveness of it. You know, this is the danger of it. And one thing I was doing at this uh, convention uh, yesterday, I was presenting a paper on Westworld. And there's a similar sort of sense there that uh, on the one hand, this is a place where people go for pleasure, for a holiday, you know, to have fun. And yet behind it all, there's just this totalitarian surveillance mechanism grinding away, you know, making sure that everybody gets the experience they want and that everybody's happy. But it's such a stage-managed happiness that you really have to ask yourself what the cost is. So people keep rediscovering the prisoner, Mm -hmm. like you were saying, and everyone seems to discover it at similar points in their Mm -hmm. life, but that can be any time over the last 50 years. Why do you think it's had this longevity? Why is it still fresh, even when people come to it 
now just as they would have done 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Uh, well, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, first of all, I think um, the aesthetic is timeless. People often think of the prisoners being very, a very 60s aesthetic, but actually if you look at um, pictures and films of people in the street in the 60s, it's not. It's very stylized compared to what people were actually wearing. And this gives it, uh, you know, kind of an unreal quality that means it doesn't really date. But I think also it's because the themes the prisoner was dealing with are things that are uh, essentially universal. And one of the things we talk about in the book is that there's a lot of um, emotional psychology in the prisoner, a lot of developmental psychology. I think it's no accident that a lot of people uh, come to the prisoner at that kind of university stage because um, it's very much a series about kind of... Uh, um, just moving, in a sense, out of childhood and discovering who you are, you know, kind of who you are as the individual in society. And um, that's uh, really something that a lot of people are thinking about around university time. I also think it's got, you know, wider uh, social relevance, you know, and uh, the way it's written in this kind of surreal, allegorical sort of way means, again, that uh, you can't sort of point to something and say, you know, oh, that's John F. Kennedy, or, you know, oh, that's the Cuban Missile Crisis, or something like that. There's uh, things that uh, happen in the prisoner that you can seem, you know, uncomfortably familiar now. So as a TV show of its time, mm -hmm. it it did a lot more than mm. just be about you know, a spy or be an adventure show mm. or an action show. There was a lot more depth to it than was around on TV mm. at the time. Mm. Um, to what extent do you think you know, that's been part of its uh, enduring uh, relevance? Well, I think that's a big part of it. Mm. I think the first show that I know of, uh, there may well be others that I'm not aware of, but it's the first show that I know of that really actively played with the conventions of television and even took uh, weaknesses of production and made them into strengths, like um, the, the, the use of stock footage, for instance. You know, there's um, stock footage, which means that sometimes you see Patrick McGowan in backgrounds where Patrick McGowan shouldn't be, but it's been repeatedly established that there are duplicates of Patrick McGowan running around the village. So is this an error? Maybe it isn't. Maybe, uh, but... It uh, takes the sort of thing that would be an error in a series like Danger Man mm. and uh, turns it into something uh, that, uh, that makes you actually question what you're watching. And the fact that they were able to do some series episodes uh, in Port Marion and some episodes even in studio, and you don't actually realize that it's an in-studio episode just because of the uh, really clever uh, use of studio combined with stock, you know, that... Uh, you know, as I said, you know, it may well be that there were others uh, working on this, but this is uh, kind of the first series I'm aware of that really played with um, TV in, uh, in, that, in that sort of way. I think, um, going back to the point about the actual production, mm. is it the schizoid man mm. where I still think actually the scenes where you've got mm. two number sixes yeah. actually still hold up pretty oh, well. Oh, they're brilliant. It's they're very brilliant. odd because you know, yeah. around that same time, similar things were being yeah. done. But... Um, they really look really good. I mean, a lot of the effort was put into, yeah. I think, making it look... And it's like something we kind of show. take for granted mm. now because we've got uh, CGI and compositing has got mm. to the point where you can have series like Orphan Black where yeah. uh, Tatiana Maslovsky is uh, hugging herself and running around in scenes with herself and you don't even really think about who it's, how it's done until afterwards where you're thinking, wait, how was that done? <laughs> and yet, um, you know, in a time well before we could do that sort of thing, uh, they did that and they made it seem so natural. You know, you don't spot the join and the double exposure uh, or, or the cutting back and forth at all. You really don't. It's amazing. 
And you mentioned very briefly Danger Man. So mm, yes, um, it was what he did before The Prisoner. There's a lot of overlap. Um, there are some episodes of Danger Man where you can kind of clearly see the antecedents of The Prisoner. Even you know when you're getting into the later ones like Shindashima, you mm. know you're seeing uh, you know uh, uh, the seeds of what's going to be The Prisoner. And also as Danger Man progressed, it did start to get a little more surreal and started almost to uh, kind of verge into spoof. And so at some points, you know his his bed with the magic headboard that <laughs> seems to contain practically everything <laughs> you don't think you'll need in a bed. Uh, but um, the th- uh, but at the same time, you know I don't think that um, you know I, th- I think. I think I think it's a more complicated connection than that. I think um, the prisoner, the prisoner, as it were, is aware of Danger Man and it's quoting Danger Man, but at the same time, it's not Danger Man the sequel. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about how the prisoner works in terms of its structure over those episodes? So, a lot has been said about whether the um, the order in which they were aired is very mm. different to how they were mm. made, and mm. I think Patrick McGowan came out and said that there are only really seven mm-hmm. odd key episodes yeah. that actually tell the overall arc of The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. What's your view on, on that? Well, in some ways everything kind of fell into place when we discovered that there were actually four episode twos. <laughs> <laughs> that there was episode one and then they basically told four writers, give us an episode two and then just kind of uh, picked a random order to wear them in. Uh, so in some ways, you know, the subsequent four episodes are almost, uh, you know, they... Uh, uh, it's hard to put an order in there because they all come second and you can't really uh, put them in any order. You know, any order you put them in, something contradicts that order. Um, But in some ways that is part of, uh, I think, again, getting back to the the point about um, postmodernism, if I can use the word, and the appeal of uh, the prisoner. In some ways, uh, I think that's um, part of it, the fact that it defies... Uh, actively defies being put in an order or uh, some kind of classification that you uh, that, uh, can actually watch those episodes in literally any order and uh, still come away with the same picture. So we know that it starts with Arrival and mm-hmm. it ends with Fallout. I think yes. that's the only certain thing we know. Yes, well Once Upon a Time does kind of lead into oh. Fallout so yeah, yeah. So the Fallout 2 parter if you <laughs> call it that, yeah. Uh, do you still remember the first time you watched Arrival and what were your thoughts as you were seeing it for the first time well strangely actually the first episode I saw was the schizoid man (laughs) (laughs) Um, because actually the first place I saw it was uh, at the uh, Oxford University Doctor Who Society which this was during the Doctor Who hiatus and Mm. so the uh, Doctor Who Society despite the name had kind of become a little bit sort of um, you know the classic TV society um, and uh, one of the presidents uh, of the society while I was there was a huge prisoner fan, and that was his favorite episode, so we watched it. Um, so I didn't see Arrival until some time later, and, uh, and after I was familiar with the conventions of the series. Um, so that was kind of an interesting way of coming to it, because I you know, was seeing it as, you know, not as a kind of an introduction to the village, but as a kind of almost a backstory, a filling in of... Uh, how he came to the village and what the setup is with number one and, and number two and um, you know the, uh, um, the the map that, uh, the surreal sort of map that goes nowhere and uh, you know and so it was uh, you know it, it maybe wasn't everybody's experience of arrival but uh, certainly it was uh, kind of more uh, less a what is this place and more a sort of a aha moment <laughs> yeah 
after watching your first mm-hmm. Prisoner episode, were you an instant fan or did it grow on you? Oh, I was an instant fan. Yeah. Like I said, the village was so beautiful, the concepts so surreal and clever, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to see more. I just completely had to see more. So uh, yeah, you know, that uh, uh, friend I mentioned uh, who uh, was a Prisoner fan was more than happy to uh, <laughs> <laughs> introduce new people to the series, mm. so, uh, so it kind of went from there, and I just completely devoured the series. Mm. And, uh, yeah, then watched it again and again. And uh, when we were writing the book, of course, uh, you know, we were watching... We, we watched it over and over, We, uh, but we also kind of took in everything we could peripherally. I mean, we watched... Uh, wh- whenever Alan and I are working on a book, we tend... Um, I think it's because I'm an anthropologist by training, and uh, anthropology is kind of an assi- uh, it's, it's kind of an assimilative discipline. You sort of immerse yourself in the society or group you're studying... And when uh, we're writing about a TV show, we have a tendency to watch everything around it. So we watched The Prisoner, we watched Danger Man, we watched uh, pretty much every film Patrick McGowan made between the 50s and the early 70s. And uh, and a lot of other things at the same time. You know, we uh, watched uh, Our Man Flint, Year of the Sex Olympics, things like that, you know. And it was really worthwhile, actually, because um, doing it like that can show you a lot of connections that you don't always make. Like, you watch uh, Fallout and you think, wow. And then you watch a lot of 60s movies and you realize how many 60s movies end with a similar sort of chaotic throw-the-script-in-the-air type sequence, you know, where everything just descends into uh, chaos. Frequently there are missiles being launched. I don't know why. (laughs) That's a big trope. Uh, So, uh, you know, um, what's... not our man Flint, the uh, 67 Casino Royale, things like that, you know, they're both... uh, And, uh, you know, so... You know, it doesn't make the prisoner less special, but it sort of contextualizes things a bit more, you know, aesthetically and in terms of how people were thinking. I mean, I don't think, I don't think the prisoner could have been made at any other time, you know, but at the same time, that doesn't make it a product of its time or derivative. You know, what it was doing with it was something that none of the others were doing, but it is interesting seeing it in the context of uh, things like that. Fallout is a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. It's very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. It covers many different aspects beyond yeah. sort of like a, a recappy episode guide. It really goes into depth of things. What made you want to actually write about the prisoner? Well, it uh, wasn't something we'd actually in, in originally planned on doing. It's a strange thing to admit, but um, we um, we wrote Liberation, which is the first guidebook, which is a the unauthorized guide to Blake Seven, because. Um, we were both Blake Seven fans, and Alan, in particular, uh, knows uh, has has known a lot of the people involved with the production of it for years. And I know some of them, but he's known them for much longer than I have. And uh, anyway, the thing was that you know we belonged to fan groups, and we'd have discussions online and things like that. And eventually, I said to Alan, "Look, you know, we really ought to write a book, you know, because this is just kind of going out into you know, Usenet and uh, Ether space, and uh, you know, why don't we?" you know, take this knowledge and put it in a book. And so um, after asking a few friends who uh, write guidebooks, you know, kind of uh, what publisher might be interested, we sent a pitch to uh, David Howe at Telos, and they'd just really kind of gotten started in doing guidebooks. They've done a lot more since, yeah. but at the time, um, you know, they um, the only guidebooks uh, they had were uh, two by... Uh, uh, Keith Topping, you know, which had originally, I think, been intended as Virgin guidebooks and fell through when uh, Virgin ended their line. Um, But Telos were interested. But the thing was that um, liberation was uh, something that they weren't expecting. 
Um, at the time, um, guidebooks were changing, and Liberation was kind of one of the first guidebooks, uh, possibly the first. Alan thinks it might be the first. I, you know, ideas tend to come in bunches. Mm -hmm. But certainly we were one of the first uh, guidebooks um, to kind of do away with the sort of facts and figures approach and instead go for a kind of a, an essay, an, an essay per, uh, per episode approach. Because both Alan and I were thinking that uh, really the kind of facts and figures and uh, quotable moments guidebook was kind of on its way out because the internet was really taking hold around um, early 2000s. And so people could just Google it, you know, they could, or Alta Vista it as it was in those <laughs> days. Uh, but they could, uh, they could, all the information, you know, was at their fingertips. If you want to know who played what, if you want a list of quotable moments, that's no problem. So what people want is... Uh, we thought, is a book that uh, you could sit down with and uh, read, uh, you know, watch the episode, look up the info, and then sit down and read what people think about it. Yeah. You know, maybe get a few ideas you haven't before. But the thing is, when we then started submitting bits of uh, draft guidebook, uh, David Howe was like, uh, this is nothing, like nothing, I've, uh, a guide, no guidebook I've read before. What do we, and uh, unbeknownst to us, he sent it to Andrew Pixley, who you've undoubtedly heard of. He's done guidebooks of the prisoner himself. And Andrew looked at it and basically said, this is great, this is wonderful. And so uh, uh, David Howe was reassured and kind of let us carry on. As I said, it really worked. People really liked that approach, it turned out. And, but um, then what happened was apparently um, uh, David came up to us at the uh, Fitzroy Tavern, which was the big uh, Doctor Who group at the time. It's, uh, the tavern closed for refurbishment, and uh, so the uh, Doctor Who group moved uh, across the street. <laughs> but uh, you know, so, uh, the time was still the Fitzroy Tavern. And he said uh, that um, Andrew had also said, sign these guys up for another book. And he said, um, I can give you the choice of Babylon 5 or The Prisoner. And it was really no choice. I mean, I love Babylon 5. Actually, one of the things I want to do today is go to the Babylon 5 fan meet. Yeah, yeah. But, and the Bab Babylon 5 is very much influenced by The Prisoner mm -hmm. as well. But um, it has an issue in that it was constrained by the U.S. network system. So... Um, there's probably maybe about 20 episodes of Babylon 5 that you need to watch. Hmm. And everything else is filler. Yeah. Sometimes it's good filler. Sometimes it's less good filler. But uh, it does sort of constrain the series when, um, you know, you, uh, the story could be so tightly told and yet you're continually being put on hold for, uh, you know, an amusing episode. But it's an, uh, just an amusing episode. So we thought, go for The Prisoner, because it's seminal, it's direct, it's interesting. Um, while a lot of people have said things about it, we think we could maybe say something new. And um, it is very much, you know, it's a, it's a compact series, you know. There are 17 episodes, you know, it says everything it needs to say. And it's kind of interesting that one of the other series that seems to really get people going, uh, Firefly, is also 17 episodes and uh, very tightly uh, written as a result. And I sort of think, you know, is there some kind of uh, thing that, uh, you know, um, the series that grab people's imaginations are short to the point and direct? Yeah. When you actually came to write mm -hmm. um, Fallout, how did you put it together? So if you're moving beyond a straightforward recap mm -hmm. and you really have to put thought into you know, what the show means to you what kind of ideas you want to put forward like how long did it take to put it together I mean did you go to Port Marion when you were writing oh, yeah, it and yeah. you know, think about it there as yeah. well yeah well we didn't stay in Port Marion itself we neither of us could have afforded to at that <laughs> point um, I still can't <laughs> uh, but um, we uh, stayed in Port Maddock yeah. 
and um, so we'd stay in Port Maddock and uh, we'd go up to uh, Port Marion for, um, for the day. Uh, uh, first uh, time we didn't have a car, so uh, we went up by bus and uh, experienced the wonder that is North Welsh uh, buses. Uh, I, you know, the, it's, it's almost prisoner-esque in its way. You know, you, uh, the bus turns up when the driver feels like it. It drives out when the driver feels like leaving. And uh, then you kind of, uh, you ask him, okay, when, is, when are you go, is your last trip back to town? Oh, maybe about five. All right, well, <laughs> let's hope. <laughs> if not, we got a long walk. But... Yeah, so we went up to uh, Port Marion uh, a couple of times while we were working on it. Um, generally speaking, our modus when we were working specifically on the series is we'd sit down. Well, we, we watched the whole series through just kind of for fun first. Um, then, um, and as I said, we did a lot of watching around the series, looking at film and television at the time, reading books. Uh, I had, at the time, when we started writing it, I still had access to the Bodleian Library at Oxford, which was great because it's a depository library, which means that... Uh, um, it, well, it's not quite true that it contains everything that's uh, published in the UK, but it contains pretty much everything that was published in the UK. So even ephemera, like Six of Ones, various uh, um, handouts. Mm. And another source that was really helpful, actually, was... Um, do you know about the Merrill Collection in Toronto? No. Okay, this... Um, a PSA to your listeners, actually, because everybody should know about this. In Toronto, there is a dedicated science fiction and fantasy library. Wow. It contains, they're, they're trying to collect as much sci-fi and fantasy books and media as they possibly can. Um, it's been going for years. It's called the Merrill Collection uh, because I, well, Judith Merrill is heavily involved in it. I think her actual personal collection was the core of it and uh, carried on from there. Um, but um, so I went to, um, on trips uh, to Toronto, I'm from Toronto, still got family there. So on trips to Toronto, I went to the Merrill Collection and said, do you have anything on The Prisoner? And they did. They had ephemera and fanzines that we didn't have in the UK. And they also had something... This is a side story. Can I tell the side yeah, story? Yeah, sure. it, yeah. Um, the librarian said, maybe you can help us. And she came in, and she had a huge wadge of scripts and dropped them on the table. And she said, these are scripts for the prisoner. She said, and we have no idea where they came from or what they are. And she said, they're really weird because they're not shooting just like dialogue transcripts, just printed, large paper just the dialogue boxes. So I, um, you know, took notes, took photos, and I went back to the UK and sort of basically said, hide mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and actually, if it was Andrew Pixley who had the uh, solution, um, they were dialogue translator scripts ah. uh, for the people who were going to work up the translation for yeah. the dubbing. And of course, this explains why they were in Canada, because they must have been for the French dub. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, as I said, at some point they'd been donated to the Merrill Collection. They had no idea. So I emailed <laughs> back and told the librarian, and she was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, side story, but we did that. But when we were working on each individual episode, what we do is we'd sit down and we'd watch it, and um, we'd usually take the process, it's still, when we do reviews of episodes, it's kind of, we usually take two to three times as long as the actual episode, because we watch it, uh, we pause it, we make notes, um, Usually I've got a laptop and I'm uh, doing the typing, but uh, um, because of that, Alan's usually scrutinizing the screen <laughs> and saying, wait, wait, you know, make a note about it, you know. And so, uh, you know, usually it takes us um, a 45-minute episode would take us at least an hour and a half to get through in terms of notes. Then usually um, we go away and uh, think about it and talk about it and see what other kind of thoughts emerge. And then afterwards we'd um, sit down kind of, put the notes into some kind of rough theoretical order, write up some section headings, and then uh, write the essay. 
But again, you know, we keep going back to things. And also, when you're watching a series like that, sometimes then you'll watch a later episode, and it'll give you an insight into uh, an earlier episode, or vice versa, you know. Or, again, you know, just if something will happen, you know, what's new pussycat happens to be on television, and you watch it, and you're like, ah, right, okay, that's where you got that bit. <laughs> or, um, you know, the uh, DVD of Brand finally arrives. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we're... Uh, that's how we uh, do the basic work on our books, but we uh, tend to kind of go on from there, you know, that uh, it develops. Uh, and uh, we, we're just kind of continually writing literally up to the last minute, you know. Uh, the, uh, even on the proofs, we're, uh, you know, sort of saying, can we fit in a footnote? This was actually less of an issue with The Prisoner than it was with the Battlestar Galactica books, particularly the new series, because... The, we um, tried to get as close to the end of the new series as possible so that, you know, it was still fresh in people's minds. Um, but um, as a result, information was still coming out. And so, like, really right up to the last minute, you know, we were sort of like, I know we haven't got space in the actual text. Can we add a footnote? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, usually, uh, so Telos would get back and say, okay, you have 50 words. And so you'd have to figure out how to uh, say what you needed to say in 50 words. It was like Twitter. <laughs> Have you thought about uh, returning to the prisoner in in book form at all? Is there any other analysis you'd like to do as a, you know as a follow up, not as a mm. updated and revised version of Fallout, but as something new? Um, well, to be honest, um, not so much uh, because it did sort of feel like with uh, Fallout, you know, we kind of went through so much and sort of all our thoughts, you know, the building over the years and the prisoner kind of came out. I mean, it might be interesting to do more about. Uh, Kind of the Magoo and Opus more generally, like look at uh, how the prisoner fits into uh, you know the the work of his life and particularly of that very creative period. Um, but as I said, in terms of the prisoner specifically, I'd know. I mean, you know, if somebody asked me to write an article about it or even kind of a quite long article about it, um, then uh, I think I could find more to say. But uh, you know, in terms of uh, actually analyzing the series as a series, you know, I think, uh, you know, I look at Fallout and I'm like, yeah, I'd, if I had to write that again, I'd still write that. <laughs> so actually, well, as we're at Worldcon, mm -hmm. um, th there have been a couple of talks about it that mm -hmm. included The Prisoner, but I did notice a few people wearing mm -hmm. number six style jackets. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think it is about the show that gives it such an iconic status in terms of the imagery that you've seen it that has permeated you know, pop culture in, in many different ways? Well, I think uh, it's the clean lines, it's the primary colours, mm. it's the kind of use of black and white versus colour. You know, the prisoner stands out because he's in black and white and everybody else is... Uh, but also I think it's the fact that, uh, you know, there, um, Alan Steele, the, um, the um, space... Uh, well, um, I should call him space opera, but, you know, kind of space fiction writer... Um, at one point, one of his books, one of his characters makes an observation about uh, iconic spacecraft, you know, from fiction. He says, the thing about sp these spacecraft is, why are they iconic? It's because you can make them out of household objects. Mm -hmm. He says, you can make the Enterprise using three straws, two, uh, three toilet tubes, four straws, and a Frisbee. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny, but yeah, you know, you take the Liberator and you can uh, cobble that together. Yeah. Even better if you've got syringes, <laughs> but, you know... Um, uh, people, uh, you know, have uh, have and do actually make liberators using uh, beads. Uh, there's a lady that doesn't, you can use them as Christmas ornaments, things like that, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, in some ways, it's the same, I think, with the aesthetic of the prisoner. It's actually really easy to make your own homemade village costumes, yeah. you know. Not only do that kind of, kind of pipe, those pipe jackets kind of 
never totally go out of style. You know, they go in and out of style, but they never uh, total. I, I've got my own prisoner jacket. I will confess, was bought at the Gap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this uh, seems like a, a weird thing, considering what the prisoner has to say about commercialization <laughs> and so on. It seems weird to admit that, but yeah, it was bought at the Gap. <laughs> but that says how much it's permeated culture, and it was uh, part of a kind of a '60s retro line that the Gap was doing. Um, but, you know, if you want to make one of those capes, it's very easy to make one of those capes. Again, a fisherman's cap, you know, um, the uh, school scarves, you know, they're very easy to uh, f- find similar ones or even identical ones. In uh, one time, you know, I was uh, with some friends having a holiday on the Isle of Wight, and uh, it was a bit of a surreal holiday in itself because the Isle of Wight's quite an eccentric place, and we sort of kept... We started making jokes about, you know, I feel like we're in the village, I feel like we're in the village. And then, as we were walking along the clifftop, along comes a very stout, very tall man with a multicolored umbrella and a yachting club jacket and a school scarf. And he says, hello! <laughs> and we're all just sort of like, be seeing you. <laughs> because... You know, what else could you do? And he was not cosplay. You know, he was not trying to look (laughs) like the prisoner. He just, it's just that you can throw together a prisoner outfit without realizing it. It's that (laughs) iconic. (laughs) In the original show, do you have any favorite episodes, favorite moments that you uh, particularly are fond of? Well, let's see. Um, so because it was the first one I saw, the Schizoid Man is always kind of a perennial favorite with me. But I also love A, B, and C, just the kind of uh, film within a film that's going on within that. And uh, um, Dance of the Dead. Yeah. Because I think Mary Morris is such a watchable actress. And also when you kind of know what was going on behind the scenes, you know, on that one, you know, it's just sort of even more intense and the kind of... Uh, um, sexual tension between the prisoner and uh, the um, uh, Bo Peep and mm. number two, you know, yeah. kind of almost uh, sort of a bisexual love triangle mm. going on. You know, it's such a it just, it's such a wonderful, strange story, that one. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Arrival and Fallout contextualize them. Uh, but I've also, just as a writer about television, I love um, what Once Upon a Time does is it, you know, it works as avant garde theater. Mm. Um, the, the, the Lasso Gallery Theatre up in Manchester actually staged it as a play. You know, they um, uh, specialize in that sort of thing, and they, they got permission, and they just did it as a two-hand play. Mm. And it worked. It worked, you know, and you could really do it as a, as a play like that. So um, I think it's not an episode that speaks to me so much emotionally, but as I said, in terms of a piece of television that just kind of leaves you going, whoa, that's art, you mm. know. I think that's art. I think it is one of the episodes also that really breaks with the conventions of what mm. you can do with television. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think if you describe that episode to somebody else, it's, it's very tough, but yeah. it's it's also one of the most engaging 45 yeah. minutes of The Prisoner that exists. And also it's one, um, you don't have to know The Prisoner to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, um, it, it does help, you know, see it in the content, you know, but uh, to say, if just sat it down, people would understand about these two men, understand about their relationship, and, uh, you know, they, they might possibly not, um, but then again, so... Uh, so it, some prisoner fans even miss the fact that uh, the pilot is not McGowan, you mm. know, and uh, the pilot is number two, and their personalities are sort of merging at that point. But, you know, there's uh, uh, just, you can pick up the relationship of the men through that interrogation and the kind of way their stories merge and combine and come out the other side. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's you know, you could, you could watch it just on its own and it would work. Do you actually have a favourite... Uh, version of number two in The Prisoner? 
Oh, it's so hard to pick. Yeah. You know, there's so many, you know, because they each bring such different things to the role. I mean, it's one of the brilliant things about the role, actually. Uh, though, can I say, one thing that I thought was actually really brave was actually um, a lot of people don't like the Prisoner quote-unquote remake yeah. of the early 2000s. I do, actually. You know, it's. Uh, I will come right out and say it on there. Uh, I do. Um, because, and I, I like it because it it didn't try to be The Prisoner. It didn't try to be a remake of The Prisoner. What it did was it took some of the ideas of The Prisoner, you know, like surveillance and dreaming and uh, psychology, and um, developed them into something that kind of riffed on the themes of the series. And I think if you're going to remake a series, you know, it's not a good idea to do a straight remake, you know. I think it's a good idea to just kind of say, you know, uh, okay, what did, what did that series say at the time? What could it say now? Which is one of the reasons I think uh, new Battlestar Galactica works. It didn't try to be old Battlestar Galactica rebooted or continued. It basically said, okay, the 70s series is a series about neoliberalism. Uh, this um, new series is also about neoliberalism, but it's uh, the, the original is made at a time when everybody's kind of saying neoliberalism is great, and uh, the uh, uh, rebooted one is coming out at post 9/11 when everybody's saying maybe this wasn't such a good idea. So uh, you know you're starting to get that uh, critique in there, and I think that's why it worked so well as a reboot. And the th same thing with The Prisoner. I think it, you know, it wasn't trying to be The Prisoner, but it was trying to use the same ideas. And this is a long-winded way of saying that I actually think it was kind of brave of them to cast Ian McKellen as number two and just keep him as number two through the series yeah. because you're expecting him to change, and he doesn't. But having him as this kind of foil, and he's such a brilliantly watchable actor anyway that uh, you, know, you kind of gradually... At first, you're say, if you're an old-school prisoner fan, you're saying, who is this guy? Why is he still here? Why has he got a son? Why are we finding out about his family and his relationship? You know, this is not right. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet, you know, it, they managed to make it work, you know, just kind of giving us a um, number two who uh, we could actually kind of see into the life of, or maybe the life of, we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it was all a dream, maybe it was all imagined. But, uh, you know, seeing him as this kind of foil for, uh, was his name Jim Cavazell? You yeah. know, it, yeah. uh, kind of an anti-Cavazell, it sort of worked. <laughs> the remake itself, I mean, a lot of mm. people have very mixed feelings yeah. towards it. But actually that moves me on to another point, which is, you know, as a remake, people didn't maybe like it because it wasn't the prisoner mm -hmm. that they wanted to see, and maybe they felt it was too precious a thing mm -hmm. to be touched. But at the same time, the prisoner has permeated mm -hmm. genre TV for the yeah. last 50 years. Yeah. It is in so many different TV shows. Oh, yeah. I argue, although it hasn't been remade, mm -hmm. there are elements of it which we find everywhere. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are the long-term genre influences of the prisoner on you know on television and even in film as well oh as i said it's it's, it's one of these I mean, one of the things that makes watching the prisoner for the first time i think such a delight is it's uh, one of these things where you suddenly realize where all the visual cliches come from <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a you know the um it's like uh, reading marshall McLuhan or watching metropolis suddenly you're you're thinking uh, you see Metropolis, and you see, oh, you know, the mad scientist with the wild hair, and then you realize this was the first mad scientist with the wild hair. This is the guy that everything, that this, uh, this is the visual you know, where everything comes from. And it's the same with The Prisoner. It's kind of become so much the language of TV, uh, especially film, as I said, but TV especially, that, uh, you know, it's seeing it, you suddenly realize where all these things came from. And, uh, as I said, you know, um, things like uh, Westworld, which isn't sort of consciously giving you, uh, you know, rover balls and things like that, but in the same sort of way is playing on the kind of panopticon, holiday village, surveillance, isolation, and the kind of back and forth between the uh, 
front stage and backstage and uh, you know the kind of creeping sense that there's something more going on here and uh, this one guy you know who is uh, in the series who is kind of the the man in black in Westworld is sort of actively trying like the prisoner actually to subvert uh, the, the the environment he's in to kind of try and uh, dig below the pretty surface and find out you know what he thinks is the secret behind it and yet at the end you know the secret that he gets isn't the secret he wants <laughs> so uh, you know as I said you know the, nobody sort of sat down and said you know kind of uh, this TV series is going to be the prisoner and yet you can see the echoes going through it. Okay, so Battlestar Galactica, there's more sort of playful conscious referencing going on. I mean, right at the start we meet number six, and she's beautiful and blonde, and not much like Patrick McGoon at all, really, but uh, though as the series goes on, maybe, uh, you know, there's closer parallels, and then you find out who number one is, and that's also very interesting, and again, you know, they, they, they do it playfully with things like, for instance, number one turning up in a white robe with his uh, face obscured, and... Uh, and yet, um, you know, at the same time, you know, they're not just kind of sort of making jokes. You know, the fact is that they are also kind of asking questions about identity and uh, what it would mean to be an individual in a um, species that where you've only really got 12 individual, you know, you've got lots of individuals, but there are only 12 types yeah. and kind of uh, a lot of uh, the series is about um, six and three and, uh, you know, and uh, eight kind of finding their individuality within their models, uh, which is a really kind of a prisoner-esque thing, if you think about it. So obviously we're at the point of the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of The Prisoner. Do you think that anyone knew that the show would still be being thought about in such high regard, 50 years on from its original release? And what, like, what do you think about the fact that it's reached, it's reached this massive milestone that many shows don't reach with the same mm-hmm. level of fanfare? Well, I think at the time, they, uh, if you'd said to them... Uh, told them about this now I think they would have been very surprised indeed (laughs) because of course after it finished it you know everybody thought it was a flop you know audiences didn't get it Lou Grade reckoned he'd poured his money into some big vanity project Patrick McGowan ran off to Switzerland to try and get his brain back in order and uh, you know so uh, you know I think at the time most people you know just thought it was some kind of uh, you know it uh, it had been fun but it had been a big waste of money and sanity Uh, but you know um It wasn't, you know, and often, I read years back, I read an article in the Financial Times which pointed out, it was about film financing, it pointed out that there, broadly speaking, there are two sorts of films. There are films that tend to gross really heavily on first release, but then there are the films that are actually flops on their first release, you know, things like Blade Runner and Brazil and so forth actually did really poorly on box office, but home cinema, cinema clubs, rerun cinema, then uh, video and DVD, when those came out, you know, have meant that they've more than grossed. uh, And The Prisoner is that sort of thing, you know. I can see how people, when it first came out, particularly given some of the irregularities in how it was shown, would be saying, you know, kind of, what? Uh, You know, but um, equally, I can see how it, uh, you know, people discover it in university, you know, it gets shown, it gets repeated, it... uh, it's been back on ITV4 again, as I recall. Mm. And so it, get, it gets that sort of momentum. It gets embedded into the culture. So, you know, it's easy in hindsight to say, yeah, it was always going to influence the culture. But at the time, I think a lot harder to say, you know, yeah, this has legs. So, Fiona, thank you for joining us for our little chat for the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner. Well, thank you. It's been lovely. Okay, well, I can just uh, say for the benefit of your listeners that not only is Fallout still available from www.telos.co.uk or Amazon or uh, your favourite SF retailer, uh, but all the other books on Battlestar Galactica and Blake 7, they're also all still available and in multiple editions now, so, uh, 
you know, you can get the most up-to-date information. The uh, Outside In series from ATB Publishing I'd also like to mention. I've got articles in all the books and uh, just coming out now is their guide to um, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and I'm reviewing The Child, which, uh, you know, so some of you should find amusing. And if you want some free content from Alan and myself, you can visit www.caldorcity.com um, where all our Doctor Who articles are collected. And for uh, my academic papers, visit www.fiona-moore.com and uh, there are links to uh, my papers on Doctor Who, Westworld, The Prisoner and so forth on Academia Edu. Yep, and we would say check out Fallout. It's a wonderful book. Thank and, you. Uh, Fiona, be seeing you. Be seeing you. So that was our interview with Fiona Moore. Thanks again to Fiona for joining us for the first of our 50th anniversary episodes. We really recommend the book Fallout, uh, written by Fiona and Alan Stevens. It's a wonderful book about the prisoner. It really contextualises the show and the era in which it was made. Yeah, and lots of really interesting sort of details and factoids throughout, as well as, I suppose, um, a decent amount of analysis as well about some of the themes that exist within it. So... Yeah, we definitely recommend you check it out. You can find details of it on our website too. Our next episode, which is going to be heading your way tomorrow, is actually going to be a pair of interviews that we did with the team at Big Finish. We spoke to uh, Nick Briggs, who's a creative driving force behind the audio drama series of The Prisoner, and also to Ian Meadows, who is the sound designer on most of the series. Yeah, we really enjoyed talking to them and we really hope you enjoy that episode when it's out this time tomorrow. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA. You can find us on Facebook at the page Time for Cakes and Ale or on our website timeforcakesandale.com. Yeah, but until next time, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.